Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Yes, so on my way here today, uh, I went to two bookshops, and both of which will be of interest to our listeners. Uh, The first bookshop is new. It only opened a few days ago. It's in Soho, and it's called The Second Shelf, and it is a feminist bookshop and quarterly publisher run by Alison Devers, and they sell first editions of many of the books that we have featured on Batlisted, (laughs) apart from anything else. So if you want to Mm, pop in and buy... A first edition of Barbara Cummings, for instance, she is available. Oh, isn't that wonderful? That could be Christmas solved. Absolutely. Many Jean Reese first editions in there. I noticed when I was in there earlier, and they were really helpful and friendly. And um, we we wish them all the the best in that endeavour. The the other bookshop I went into was Foils on the South Bank, and I want to say thank you to Scott and Colm at Foils because they have got an amazing display at the moment of books that we featured on Backlisted. But not only that, Carmen, they are already trailing your episode. No. (laughs) Yeah, it says, books featured on Backlisted, coming soon, The Tortoise and the Hare. And they're selling a big cardboard box of Moomins under the desk as well. So I'd like to say thank you very much to them. They also let me see, John, a sheet of the sales figures. And they were going, this really works. This is really selling this, books. This so any, of our pub, any publishing books. brethren who are listening to yeah, this, yeah. and yeah. also while we're dealing with any other business before we move on, uh, I also want to say thanks everyone who's bought tickets to come and see the live podcast at the LRB Bookshop. We're doing, I'm looking at our guests, I haven't even introduced <laughs> our guests. We are do, so we are being joined by Hilary Sperling and Philip Hensher to talk about Books Do Furnish a Room. Oh, my favourite writer, Anthony Paul. Oh! Absolutely adore. I can get oh, you a comp. Oh, that's great. I've got, me, I've got my old, old, old copies of The Dance of the Music of Time. Mm. I have been reading it one, one a month. Isn't it wonderful? This, oh, okay. You have to be an outsider to like Dance of the Music of Time because I was always told this ah. was completely unacceptable that I liked The Dance of the Music of Time because the whole class thing was wasted on me. <laughs> but it, British people, or English, find it you know, far too snobbish. This sold-out event is achieving legendary <laughs> status. Oh, and finally, I've got one more piece of business, which is so appropriate, given Carmen's here, what? which is um, we featured a book on the podcast about six months ago by Gail Jones called yep. Corregidora. And as a result of hearing Sarah Churchwell and us talk about Corregidora by Gail Jones, I'm very delighted to say that Donna Coonan at Virago Modern Classics... <laughs> there you go, I told you. Excellent. Excellent. Um, we, 
I will introduce you in a moment, Effie. It's fine. Donna Coonan at Virago Modern Classics will be reissuing Corregidora and two more of Gail Jones's <laughs> novels next year. That so we're amazing. really thrilled about that. So thank you, Sarah Churchwell. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Virago. Mm. Continuing the great work of Virago. Yes, there, Donna's but... doing a wonderful job with the classics. I mean, couldn't be happier. Donna said she discovered the book through the podcast, which is... yeah. So we're, th- we're thrilled, yeah, and um, I'm sure many listeners who, who want to get hold of that book just have to wait a little bit longer and it'll be in the shops again. So that's great. And now let's get on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, for our 80th episode, you find us in a small Berkshire village in the drawing room of a handsome Regency Gothic house, pouring ourselves a stiff drink after our trip up to town breathing in the mossy air and looking across the grove of beech trees towards the river, the chalk downs hunched behind us. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today are two guests. The first is Carmen Khalil, the legendary publisher and writer who is best known for founding the Virago Press in 1972. That's it. Once described by The Guardian as, quote, part Lebanese, part Irish and wholly Australian. Actually, you've forgotten the English bit, <laughs> which is quite just as well, I suppose, because it's the least interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Carmen settled in London in 1964, advertising herself in The Times as Australian BA wants job in book publishing. That's, That's right. Correct. Yeah. I did do that. Mm. After changing a generation's taste through her publishing at Virago, and in particular the Virago Modern Classics, which we will be talking about shortly, Carmen went on to run Chateau and Windus and become a global editor at large for Random House. In 2006, she published Bad Faith, a history of family and fatherland, which Hilary Sperling called a work of phenomenally thorough, generous and humane scholarship. Appointed DBE in 2017. <laughs> Do you wish me to draw a veil over that? Exactly. Right. <laughs> Welcome to Backlisted, Carmen. Thank and you. also, we're joined by our first canine guest, uh, <laughs> who you may have heard already. Please welcome Carmen's dog, Effie, who is with us today, who is a lovely Border Terrier, aren't you? Yes, you were Now fun. you're quiet. <laughs> Great. Carmen's here to talk to us about one of her favourite novels. The Tortoise and the Hare by Elizabeth Jenkins, first published by Galantz in 1954 and, of course, triumphantly reissued by Virago Modern Classics in 1983. But before we set that tortoise off ambling and in a departure from our usual routine, we've got something exciting we want to alert. Well, I can ask you, John, actually, traditionally, what have you been reading this week? Because yeah, it you is can. true to say you have been reading it this And week, I have, right? and, and reading with huge pleasure. I've been reading... The Unfortunates by B.S. Johnson. Now, there are two things to say about The Unfortunates by B.S. Johnson. The first thing is, Nikki has been involved with a project that she's going to tell us about in a minute to do a new adaptation of B.S. Johnson's The Unfortunates. But this is a total coincidence. We realised a couple of days ago that our guest today, Karma Khalil, was the publicist oh, no. for... B.S. Johnson's The Unfortunate in 1969. 69, was it? Yes. Because what oh. happened, you, I mean, come on, was that Secker, who was supposed to be publishing the book... That's right. ..fell apart at the yes. thought of publishing a book in a box. Just to remind everybody, The Unfortunate is a book that was published in 27 loose sections, a first and a last, and the other 
25, you could read in any kind of random order. And obviously, as a bit of publishing, it's a challenge to publish a box. It wasn't something that Second World War were used to. But the Collins paperback imprint that were sort of setting new standards for, for kind of publishing and, and risk-taking... Panther. ...took it on. And it, it's, it says it's published by Panther and in association with Sacred Warburg. So, Carmen, before we move on to the, to the 2018 version, what mm. was it... I don't know, I'm going to ask you, the, what was it like working on the famous book in the box? Well, I learned everything about publishing from the four men who ran... Who ran I mean, they weren't the owners of... Panther, but they ran it, and there were two editorial directors, and one of them, John Booth, is still alive and living in. Um, the only trouble is, of course, I've forgotten the name of the Harlow, Essex. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I always think John was the most responsible for that. But Brian Thompson, who was the production manager, they they agonised over yeah. getting this right because one of the things about Brian was he was an absolute perfectionist. He was absolutely committed to his wish to change the English novel. It holds in the paperback. And he, and he basically thought that yeah. after Joyce and Beckett, yes. anything that wasn't trying to push the form of the novel was sort of invalid, as Jonathan Coe in his great biographies shows you. That's exactly camp. right. This was his life's work, more or less, yeah. this one. And also it was connected with football, which he was very, very keen on. Yeah, he was a massive Chelsea fan. Yes, he was. I must say, this is my favourite. Of I think it's a wonderful it's book. It is a wonderful book, book isn't brilliant it? A book about, about, about mm. talking about ageing and death. It's mm. fabulous about the decline of his friend. I mean, he goes to Nottingham, yes. but his, his friend has died. It being B.S. Johnson, it's not really a novel in the way that you know, it's, it's about him. The, the characters in the book are, are real people. I mean, he's writing about himself. He's writing about his own children and his family and his, his wife and his friend, Tony. His who, best friend, Tony. And he's remembering time that they had together in, 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 in Nottingham, the city. But it's also full of architecture and the kind of smell, the griminess of, yeah. of kind of provincial life. Yes. In, in... Carmen, I, the question I must ask you about this. Yes. So you're the publicist on yes. this book. The things we know about... Brian B.S. Johnson, are that he's publishing a book which could be thought, perhaps erroneously, to be slightly gimmicky, that he really doesn't want people to think of as gimmicky. Mm. So was it challenging to publicise it? Was he hard to work with? No. No, no. One of the reasons I remember him so well is that we got on extremely well. And what happened a couple of weeks ago, funnily enough, I was in the LRB bookshop doing something or other, you know, listening to somebody, and his widow came up to me and she said, are you, you know, because you wouldn't recognise me sort of thing the way I look now. And I said, yes, I am. And we had the most wonderful conversation about it. And she said he was just as pleased with my work for him as I admired him. And physically, he looked very like you, John. (laughs) He did. He was the most lovely, gorgeous Mm. hunk of a man. So, Nikki, tell us what you've been working on. Yeah, well, maybe new technology can uh, bring new audiences to this book, right? That's the idea. Well, we're going to give it a go. (laughs) Did you like the book, Nikki? I did. I did, actually. And I came to the book via the audio first. So I heard the Radio 3 adaptation before I read the book. What we've done now is the Radio 3 did an adaptation back in 2010. They turned it into about 17 chapters, but they still had to play it in a linear form, right, because it's the radio. <laughs> so they did sort of pick out what chapters they were going to do out of a hat. What we've done now, because I make in my other job, 
I make what we're calling voiced-first experiences, so experiences that can be heard through an Amazon Alexa or a Google Home, right? So, and, and in this instance, we've made one for the unfortunates, and we've taken the Radio 3 drama, the adaptation, and we've basically allowed you to, every time you listen to it, you could get a random order. So it's much more true to the original concept of the book. And there are 1.3 trillion combinations <laughs> I read in the press release. Oh, yeah. 1.3 trillion potential... Uh, combination Versions of, of this novel. One, one of the things of genius about the book is whenever you read it, I've read it three times, you think the order that you've... You, is the, the right, right is the right. Oh, that's, that's so good. What I love about it, I mean, you know, we're not averse to a bit of experimentation, as you know, on backlist. Is he said it's, he wanted to... He wanted to somehow reflect the movement of a mind, that you don't think in linear fashions. You remember stuff, and then other things are connected. So that the, it wasn't a kind of a, some sort of smart-ass experiment. He was inspired by another a French writer called Marc Supporter, who did, who did a book where all the pages were completely random. But he felt having a, a, a beginning and an end gave the reader a kind of a, a framework that they could work within. Um, so, Nick, you've kept that. Haven't you? So yeah. you have to listen to the first chapter first and exactly. the last chapter last. Yeah, and I just want to add, I think what's interesting about this and why it works is it's about sort of form and function, isn't it? Because actually the, the idea of that memory and loss, um, you know, the way memories of somebody who's died, you know, mm. they just suddenly come to you, don't they? And, and, and actually that's why it works so well in this form, because you're listening, or in my case, listening rather or reading. Uh, and, and you know you don't know what order you're suddenly you don't know when you're going to remember a feeling about an emotion or a memory about somebody or what triggers that and that's why I think this works really well. Mm. We, so what have you done? So what we've done is uh, we work with that Amazon. This is on Amazon Alexa, which is the smart speaker platform. Yeah. And if you say, I'm going to give you an example because I bought a speaker in here. Yeah. Um, but if you say, Alexa, open the unfortunates. Alexa, open the unfortunates. Welcome to the unfortunates. A roaming story about friendship, memory and loss. Adapted from the book by B.S. Johnson and starring Martin Freeman. This story changes every time you listen. It's made up of sections which are shuffled into a random order. New meanings are created with each new sequence. Before we get started, you can decide if you'd like to hear where the sections begin or if you'd prefer to hear the story flow uninterrupted. If you'd like to hear the joins, a sound like this... We'll play between each section. Would you like to keep these section markers? No. Right. Before we begin, we just want to let you know that there is some swearing and some explicit content in this story. Now it's time for Martin Freeman starring in The Unfortunates by B.S. Johnson. Arrived on platform one is the 8.30 service from London St. Pancras. Right, no, bellow. This train is at 12.05 service for Leeds. Ascending. Time to get bearings. Always the same. Another Saturday, another this green ticket hall, that long office, half rounded at its ends. All brown glazed tiles. Of course, I know this city. How did I not 
realise when he said go and do City this week against United at home that it was this City. I forgot to say that it stars Martin Freeman. Well, I can hear the voice, that wonderful voice. He's perfect for him, isn't he? He's really good, yeah. Mm. When we played it to Brian's widow... Oh, did you? Yes. And his son, and they all said, oh, you know, his son was there too. Yeah. yeah, they were all. They really, they really enjoyed it. So, uh, Car- yeah. Carmen um, Johnson was a writer who was very into, as we know, different forms of fiction, and he was a poet, and he was a filmmaker, mm. and he was on TV. What do you? Th- it's a ridiculous question, really, because obviously technology has gone far and wide. But do you think he would have appreciated? the idea of taking the random element and really putting it into a I different do. medium. Definitely. He was an adventurer. I'm so going to listen to it. It's brilliant. It's, it's such, wonderful. It's such a clever thing. Tell me, how did you learn to do these things? <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I take all the credit. There's somebody. There's quite a few engineers who are helping. So if anybody wants to have a listen, you have well, you to, know, on, your, on your Amazon Alexa device, you, know, um, you have to say, hold on, I'm just going to turn her off so she doesn't start talking now. You have to say, Alexa, enable the unfortunates. So you enable wow, it. Wow, that's, yeah. that's a powerful yeah. message. Yeah. Yeah. You enable it first and then you can open but it. But I mean, who owns it, for example? I mean, where is it? Where is it? Well, it's sitting in the, in the clouds somewhere at the moment or on a server. And you have to get what to listen to it? You have like? to get one of those little devices. Yeah, you that... need a. An so app. Amazon paid you to do it. No, it's the BBC. So the BBC are publishing via this Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, very baffling. <laughs> if you bought dog biscuits, you may also enjoy the unfortunate. <laughs> well, you know what? Amazon do fairly uh, undeservedly get do cop a lot of, uh, of criticism, but actually, that is uh, that does seem to me to be a really, really Absolutely. exciting use of technology. Very good. What's interesting about it is that. Um, it was designed for commerce and kind of things like calling taxis and things like that. But actually, it's really interesting to see how creative people are utilising it and coming up with new forms. Really? And that's, I think, what's exciting. Well, mm. I'm really... Knowing what I know about B.S. Johnson and about the estate and how everyone has made efforts, particularly in the last 20 years, to make sure that people read his books and are aware of his work, I'm just really pleased that they managed to make this happen. It's wonderful. You know, yeah. that, that it's a new way to bring life to not just the book, but the radio play and introduce a new creative element to it in terms of the randomised yes. element. It's great. Do you know, I've just remembered how I first met him. Panther published a book on national service. Do you remember when men did national service? Not personally, but I remember that. Nobody's that, yeah. done anything about that for years, no. have they? No, interesting. And he did this book, which I've got for Panther. It was an original about all these men, I think Carl Miller was in it, you know, counting um, their national service. And then he did one about losing your virginity. (laughs) And he interviewed me for that. (laughs) Because you always remember the first time. (laughs) That was Brian. He did those sort of books too. He's the most extraordinary man. He a great sense of humour. He did, he did, yes. The detail I love in Jonathan Coe's biography of him is... He reproduces quite a lot of the letters that Brian used to write <laughs> to newspaper editors or other publishers saying, hello, I am B.S. Johnson. 
I am the author of the following books. Samuel Beckett has called me. <laughs> and, then he, and Samuel Beckett had to ask him to stop using the quotes. <laughs> Did you know that? Beckett said, I much no. prefer that you didn't do that. Didn't he write a letter to another author when he just released a book saying, yeah, no competition? <laughs> no, you rang them up. It was, it was Antonia Byers. It was A.S. Byers. He rang her up what? and said, I've just read your book. No competition. Goodbye. <laughs> What a lovely coincidence that you should be here, Carmen. Amazing. We were going to talk oh, I'm very pleased to talk about him. Lovely. We've talked about books enough. Now for some capitalism. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Money Maker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. We should move on to the main, yes. the main, event, main event, which is the fabulous Tortoise and the Hare. And it's the question we always ask, Carmen, which is, where were you when you first, when you first read this book? Do you remember? Um, no, I don't. I don't remember. But I think I would have been living in... Hammersmith, I think it would have been then, about 1980, something like that. And at that time, I used to go and have supper regularly with Rosamund Lehman and, and Anita oh. Bruckner. And, um, <laughs> and why are you laughing? And, 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 and Andy's such and a I'm mass. mopping my brow with, <laughs> I'm so thrilled. Please carry on. Well, Rosamund recommend. you see, all my, the, the first Virago authors I published in the classics, they were still alive. And so I met them. You know, I'd climb up a thousand stairs for some of them. They'd be living in a garret or living off a banana peel or something like that. And they all told me other books to, to, to read. Amazing. I know. And well, Rosamund Lehman. I mean, she... Rosamund Lehman told me to read The yeah. Tortoise and the Hare. And you can see why, can't you? Because, I mean, she also wrote novels about... Yeah. <sighs> Super the torture yeah. that women live through in being having to be attached to men and the lack of power they had in yeah. their lives and their, their dependence on their absolutely extraordinarily precise position 
in the English social class system if they were married to a professional man or a wealthy man or a poor man, for that matter. Yeah. Uh, that, is, that is absolutely what this book's about. Should we say that a little bit about the book? Which blurb shall I read? Shall I read the Virago modern well, classic I would blurb have that you the, yourself might have written? I would have read this, written this Do you one, want to read the probably. blurb yourself, then? You wrote it. <laughs> well, if I did. <laughs> but I might not have. It could have been Alexandra. OK. It's an art. Some people have it, Evelyn had said. Evelyn is a man, by the way. I must be dreaming, she thought wildly. It could not be a woman without looks, without... But Paul had said, are you sure you know what men fall in love with? This is the plot of the novel that fought, and I'm now going to recite to you. The magnetic Evelyn Gresham, 52, is a KC of considerable distinction. He has everything life could offer a gracious riverside house in Berkshire, a beautiful grey-eyed wife, Imogen, devoted to him and to their 11-year-old son, a replica of his father. Their nearest neighbour is Blanche Silcox, a plain, tweed-wearing woman, 50, who rides, shoots, fishes and drives a Rolls-Royce, in every way the opposite of the domestic, loving Imogen. Their world is conventional country life at its most idyllic, how can its gentle surfaces be disturbed? This exquisite novel tells a love story with a difference, as it subtly demonstrates that in the affairs of the heart, the race is not necessarily to the swift or the fair. Hmm. I think it's okay as some copy, <laughs> because you can't really give away the plot, can you? No. And so, so it was recommended to you by Rosamund Lehman. Yes. And, of course, Rosamund Lehman, you made a great success of at Virago when you brought mm. her books back into print, didn't you? Well, she you? made a success of herself, really. I mean, people were just waiting to read them. It's just a question of, rather like you, John, you know, getting the paper, getting the print, ringing up, bashing a literary editor over the head and saying, <laughs> time you, you know, did something about this. Yeah. Still the same. One of the things about Elizabeth Jenkins is she wrote 23 books, mm. fiction and non-fiction. She was probably better, better known as a biographer, do you think? Yes, during, she was. And, and, and she picked big subjects for her biographies. Um, I'm, I'm going to read just... Um, we'll bring the, the listeners up to speed as quickly as we can because um, uh, I'm just going to read... In the current edition of The Tortoise and the Hare, there is a, an afterword by mm. Carm Khalil, and there is an introduction by Hilary Mantel. And I'm just going to allow Hilary Mantel to do the heavy lifting for yeah. me <laughs> by, a, by giving a, you a potted a, biography a of Elizabeth Jenkins. In 2004, in her hundredth year, Elizabeth Jenkins wrote a memoir called The View from Downshire Hill, uh, which I have a copy of here today, which I got from the London Library. Mm. earlier today. It offers graceful and startlingly fresh pictures from a long writing life, concentrating on her earlier years. Educated at Cambridge, condescended to by Virginia Woolf, <laughs> befriended by Elizabeth Bowen, she lived at the heart of English cultural life and published 23 books. She wrote biographies of Elizabeth I, of Lady Caroline Lamb and of Jane Austen. She was a founder member of the Jane Austen Society one of those practical enthusiasts who bought and restored Jane's house at Chawton, saved it from dereliction, furnished it with impeccable attention to the period and opened it to the public. Jenkins' hypersensitivity to atmosphere may remind readers of Rebecca West. Her eye for colour and texture 
Her precise descriptions of the civilised surfaces of life recall Sybil Bedford. Like both these near contemporaries, she wrote reportage as well as fiction. All three of them were interested in spies and poisoners, in hidden acts and the murky undergrowth of human intention. But more than she is like them, she is like Austin. Formal, nuanced, acid. She surveys a room as if she were perched on the mantelpiece, an unruffled owl of Minerva, a recording angel. Yes, that's very, very good, isn't it? I'm that spot on. I, I wanted to say to you, Carmen, that I read The Tortoise and the Hare, which I, which I loved. I also read a book that Jenkins published in 1933 called Harriet, and then a similar book she wrote 40 years later called Dr. Gully. Dr. Gully. Well, you see, there's one thing that Hillary... I don't think it would be possible for Hillary, you know, because she didn't publish as many of these women as I did. A remarkable number of these women of this period were interested in murder. They wrote about murders, they went to the old Bailey, they, they, they wrote biographies of murderers. And I think in The Tortoise and the Hare, you can feel absolutely the, the same mind. I mean, she, she, it is a, a novel of tremendous placidity and mm. passion in a way, and a love story of a different kind. But there's fury underneath it. What I was going to say, Carmen, was that Harriet in particular is a terrific book. Yes, but it, And they are based on real, real. criminal cases mm. of neglect and possibly murder. Yes. When I read The Tortoise and the Hare, I totally agree with you. It's I was a thinking, different kind of no, murder. No, it is, absolutely. absolutely. A crime is taking place, yeah. but where is the crime? The crime, yeah. the crime, the crime is, is spread absolutely. through the book. It's, it's, That's what struck me this time with reading it, it yes. It, it is brilliant, isn't it? Because when I started to read it, I was thinking, this is very... Upper middle class. I know, yes. I, I, I've, I can't quite believe that this is Carmen's favourite novel. And then what she does is you realise, of course, that Evelyn, who is an idiot, you just think he's one of those upper middle class kind of annoying, know-it-all kind of lawyer types. Uh, and Blanche is a, is, is a bit of a joke. And Imogen's a bit wet. Very quickly, all of those things are, are blown away. And the, these characters come to sort of a, extraordinary four-dimensional life. You want to hate mm. all of them, but she she just will not let you do it. She won't give you the easy out. She resists melodrama, even when it seems that there's going to be no possibility other than there's going to be a dramatic scene. It's it's remarkable, this book, for, for that control, I think. Well, I think there's something quite important to say about just one tiny reply to what you said. If you're not interested in class and you can't observe it, you don't see what you're objecting to in that book novel. It never occurred to me to worry about class when I read a novel because I wasn't raised as an English person to think about class. So what you were saying about Dance to the Music of Time. Absolutely. There's the, I mean, but I do agree with you, the food in this novel is disgusting. <laughs> and the upper, I mean, the English do eat disgusting food. They pretend they don't, but it all comes from somewhere else. And... It's terribly funny in an Austenesque way. I mean, I'd love oh, to read some of yeah, the Austenesque things. You're going to. Will you ever that, forget yeah. the iced ham mousse <laughs> that they have <laughs> at one point? And that is a part of, of the incredible class that they belong to. Go to the Berkshire, yeah. you know, hunt with the hand. Well, read, read, some, read some of the Austen Austen like. I'll do my Austenesques, shall I? Okay. Well, this one, which I simply adore. Well, the, the other woman in this novel is called Blanche Silcox. 
She's very, very unattractive, and most particularly unattractive, her little pointy feet. Uh, and here is um, Elizabeth Jenkins uh, describing her. In the general estimation of the female sex at least, Blanche Silcox would have been lucky in having an intimate connection with any man reasonably pleasant and agreeable. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Oh, I've done the ham mousse. We don't want any more ham mousse. Um, ah, this is Cecil, who is Imogen, the heroine's best friend, describing Blanche. If hypocrisy and adultery are no drawbacks to being a nice woman, I'm sure she's as nice as can be. <laughs> this little description of Blanche, when you, you think you've got Blanche and you think she's almost a kind of Jennifer Saunders pastiche of a countrywoman. But li listen to this. This is so good. The impression Blanche made upon her in the first few moments was like that of the indrawing draught of a furnace. Had this quality been, as it were, unregulated, it might well have frightened a man off. But here it was accompanied by the awkwardness, the diffidence, the modesty of an inexperienced elderly woman. What the combined effect of these qualities might produce, even in the most unlikely circumstances, was by no means easy to decide. Cecil was fonder of Imogen than anyone in the world, and though she was not saying very much, it said everything of which she was capable. Therefore, when she roused her powers of observation for Imogen's sake, her mind became so alert that everything she saw and heard told her something. She noticed that when Blanche Silcock spoke to Evelyn, it was in a slightly lower tone than she used for anybody else. Mm. It's just... Tiny little, little And it's, it's this... Like you say, it's like a, like a case that you're, you're building up the case for a prosecution that you're not sure... Who's in the? Well, it's like who is the tortoise? Who is the hare? Yes, absolutely. But also that is that is, that connects once again to our discussion on how many of these novelists were interested in crime and observed crime and mm. observed how people punished each other. Yeah. You were saying about class, um, and you were saying, John. Rightly, I agree with you. I started reading this and thought, oh, OK, well, it's a certain group of people at a certain moment, and, and then as you, as you observe correctly, it then opens out and down as it goes on. But clearly this was an issue that a lot of these writers had even when they were publishing. There's a story that Elizabeth Jenkins tells in her memoir, The View from Downshire Hill, which illustrates this really well. When my novel, The Tortoise and the Hare, was published in 1954, Rose Macaulay was on a BBC committee which discussed recent fiction. This was, in terms of financial success, my best novel, but I encountered some severe personal criticism from readers who felt that the interest of the book was much too confined to one class, not to say one income bracket. I was told by a young man, a student in a university society to which I had been asked to give a talk, that what was wrong with the book was that it wasn't about anything that really mattered. <laughs> As I felt that the suffering caused by the breakup of a marriage was something that did matter, I asked him, in surprise, what were some of the things that really mattered? After a pause, he said, well, trade unions. <laughs> some of, so it goes on. Some of the speakers on the air held a view similar to the young man's, though more fluently and pungently expressed. One of them said in withering tones, all this about gracious living. <laughs> the centre of the book 
was a brilliant, hard-natured man, the woman's husband, and her ten-year-old son who was completely remote from her, and I felt this criticism was altogether unfair. I was listening to the programme and at this point was so glad to hear Rose McCauley exclaim, Gracious living? What do you mean by gracious living? Evelyn wasn't very gracious. Gavin wasn't gracious. Do you just mean that they had enough to eat? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. You know what that reminds me of is is the same thing as Torve Janssen being criticised that that the Moomins and then it was bourgeois, you know, Mm. because the... Mama Moomin carried a handbag and the father had it. It wasn't sufficiently rigorously, yeah, you know, c- kind of yeah. pseudo-proletarian. Well, trade unions. Yeah, <laughs> trade union. I was thinking about it today and thinking, what would she have voted? Because, of course, at the moment, what, yeah. what, what is one to do except slit one's head around its <laughs> throat with the nearest implement? Um, I've, I think she was a liberal. Yes. You know what I mean? She feel, that's what she feels because to me, she, suffragette and a kind of... Yes, because she can be quite vicious about the upper classes as well, if you're going to go on about class here. I mean, I love this description of Evelyn. She was perfectly aware of what it was like to be an inferior yeah. woman in British society. This is a description of him after he's had his holiday. Um, he comes back from a holiday where he's been with men. By the way... She, she's tremendously aware of how much men of that class wanted to be with other men. I think there's a very strange threnody in this novel because, in fact, Blanche is quite masculine. Yeah. And he's an upper-class or mm. upper-middle-class boy. He's probably been to a public school. And um, there's, there's a sort of sense of strange sexuality throughout it, but we won't go there. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to describe to you... I'm going to read to you what, how she describes him. The holiday had left his face the colour of tawny marble. The sea-bright eyes with their dark framing of brows and lashes had a look of indulgent interest. The short nose, with its springing arch of nostril, suggested, it was true, a less benevolent temper. In the heavy lower part of the face, the lips were shut like the edges of an iron box. Ooh. I know. Now, you went now... You, we was Evelyn, the, the husband in this novel. Yeah. You, uh, in your afterwards. I know. Could you, could you tell us? You, you met Elizabeth Jenkins and you discussed the character with her. Yes. Didn't you? Well, you see, it's quite clear that he's the sort of man I would absolutely abominate. I mean, he's the Jacob Rees-Mogg of his time. <laughs> yeah. But what happened when I went to see her was she told me that the whole story of this was true. It was based on her love for. Um, I think he was. A, was he, Gyne- he was a gynaecologist. He was a gynaecologist. That was useful, wasn't it? In yeah. case you, you know. well, <laughs> called, um, I, I got his name, Erdley, Sir Erdley Holland. Yes. Well, they gave each other up, and his wife died, and he married the next door neighbour. And this novel was her response to the because he, he'd come back to her after he married the next door neighbour and said, "Could we start again with our, you know, affair, which is after all the most important thing in both our lives." And um, she, instead of replying, she sent him a copy of The Tortoise and the Hare. And you see, that was her revenge. She never heard from him again. <laughs> but a few weeks later, she knew he collected... Can you imagine being in love with a man who, who collects things like this? He collected glass paintings of Queen Charlotte. <laughs> and she found one. 
and posted it to him with a kind note saying she thought he didn't have this particular one. And um, some weeks later it came back, very badly wrapped and very badly scratched, and the handwriting was not his. And it had been, it had been bashed so that the glass was broken. But when she turned it round, the original string had been changed for a new string. So he had got it, he'd hung it up, and the Blanche Silcox had read the novel too, read her portrait, and bashed the glass thing and posted it back to, <laughs> which you want, to, to, to Elizabeth. But don't you adore it as a piece of revenge? Because you see, it is about fury, yeah. the fury and, of the rejection. But you, she, but she, you she, said, didn't you, Common, this is the, the detail that I absolutely loved. You said to her... Oh, he, the, he detestable. What did she say? Well, you didn't know him. <laughs> and she, and perfect, she says, she says in, you she didn't says, know she him. She says, it's brilliant. And she says in an interview that she took, that, you know, she, that about the affair, I offered him my heart on a plate. He made me unhappy, but it was worth it. My feeling for him lasted after his death. It's still going on now. I know. This was when she was nearly 100. Yes, but can she we never discuss married? now for about 24 hours? Female masochism. <laughs> <laughs> Let us not draw breath on the subject. Let us drone on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> I'm sure our producer will have something to say <laughs> on that topic. And but, you see, what is so extraordinary about Elizabeth Jenkins, she knew about it because she was an e- exemplar of it. Yeah. And that's what they do for their men, you know, yeah, in those I mean, days. In those days? They did. Because what they got as a reward was the protection of a great strong man with an iron uh, jaw of an iron box. <laughs> but mm. many of the writers who wrote introductions to these novels when I first published them now, what is it, 40 years ago? Mm. Republished them, sorry. Um, or a different class of writer. You know, it's wonderful to think how much like, women's lives have improved because there's always the element of astonishment when you read a novel like this, to think what women suffered before everybody tried to change their lives in the Western world anyway. Can I ask you a couple of things? Because you talked about when you were publishing these books. I'm, you know, John and I are fascinated by this element. So there, there, are, there are, were or are or have been approximately 800 Virago modern mm. classics. When you were researching... Mm. and finding these books. Mm. I read a thing you were talking about that you would get a recommendation from an author or you would go to the London Library or you would go to the British Library or there wasn't an internet to refer to. No, there, no, there wasn't. wasn't. But the thing is, once I started, uh, I met a lot of the writers of that generation. The first writer, I think everybody knows, well, the first one I published was Antonia White. Mm. And though she was terribly... Um, mental illness now of course she wouldn't suffer from it at all she'd have a lovely pill and be perfect she knew a lot of them from previous parts of her life even though she was 80 when I first met her or 78 which I'm older than Antonia now when I first met her and then you know Rosamond introduced me to them and Rebecca West I knew all of them would, would suggest other ones and you see Rosamond also suggested one that nobody reads anymore now who might absolutely love, called May Sinclair. But there's an interesting uh, thing there. The May Sinclair became very involved with a poet called Charlotte Mew, who yeah. killed herself by drinking a bottle of Lysol. And all of that became 
was opened up to me. The whole world of Charlotte Mew, Harriet the Mount, the poetry bookshop. It was an entire literary world that they all opened up to me, that they passed on to me. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yes, sure. And there was Storm Jameson, who was alive. I went to see her in Cambridge. She was 93, and she was sitting in her chair. Shall I walk into Cambridge every day? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I come back, and I sit in this chair, and I have a little nap, and I wake up, and she said, I can't believe I've woken up again. <laughs> <laughs> And Virago was, um, you know, a very popular uh, author with our listeners is Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, who my heroine. There you go. Who you were instrumental in yes, keeping in print. Yes. And, I mean, did I've, I don't know if you'd started Virago at this point. Did you ever meet Elizabeth Taylor? No, she died very young. And, you see, what was fascinating about her was I went, uh, left Virago. I didn't leave it, but I went... Oh, it's too complicated a publishing story to tell you, but I also ran Chateau. I didn't mm -hmm. run Virago at that point. I just continued to do... Once I went to Chateau, I just continued with the um, Virago Modern Classics for Virago. And um, Chateau published Elizabeth Taylor. And Chateau always was, a, was, perhaps because of the Hogarth Press, was yes. seemed more sympathetic to women than, oh, yeah. than Kate. I know. I mean, it's, 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 still is, actually, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's true. It's, mm. it's, what do you think, I often wonder, what do you think would have happened to all these writers if you hadn't launched Virago? I mean, do you think they would have just sunk into or they would... I mean, mm. it's, it's, it's extraordinary how many great, what we now see... Well, I don't, I don't think so, because, you see, I can, I'm part of a generation of women who started to get power in publishing, because it's all to do with power. The fact that I started my own company, could do what I like, is marginally different. But if you think about the rest of them like Liz Calder and there's hundreds of others who did the same in their own publishing houses. And I think um, they would have done it within publishing in, a, in some way. They would have said, goodness me, I've got this on my backlist. And when I, I'm fascinated to know, when you went to the book trade mm. and said, we're republishing uh, a series of old books by writers you may not have heard of, Please support us. Oh. Did they look at you like, why would we do that? Well, or... there's various things to be said about that. First, I never went through it near any bookshop. I was hopeless with sales, completely right. hopeless. <laughs> and luckily I had Kate Griffin who came. Uh -huh. yeah. And Kate just took over and she just did everything, you know, dump bins, all that. I could do a dump bin because I did publicity. But I didn't like anybody to question... You know, say, I don't like the look of that cover and I'd have hysterics. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. you couldn't get me in here. <laughs> yeah, OK. And that was one thing. What was the question? Well, was, was the trade, was the book trade resistant no, oh, or were look, they supportive? I've given my, oh, I didn't give it, I sold it for a little bit of money, thank God, to the British Library. I, it, and it's open to everybody to mm. read. The abuse I got for starting Virago, ah, there's no words to describe it. <laughs> for, the, the press were the worst. Mm. Obviously, they still are. But did booksellers respond warmly? Well, not Once at first, they were up and running. Nothing like the press, absolutely. And, yeah, I think... And we had lovely reps helping us. We were, our first reps were something called Writers and Readers, but they were having terrible troubles of their own because quite a lot of the people in, in alternative publishing at that time were quite radical, and I like collectives and things like that, which I mm. was not very collective, to put it mildly. And what was the first of the Virago modern classics, do you think, that made a real 
cultural impact, shall we say? I would, I would definitely say the first one, which was Frost in May. Okay. So it, it was, so it was game on straight away. Yeah, straight on. But the later on, I honestly would say that if you were going to change the, um, the sense of what is great in English literature, it would be Elizabeth Taylor. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, Elizabeth Jenkins is not unlike Elizabeth no. Taylor. These are novels in the tradition of English women's writing, yeah. which is very phenomenal. And which, uh, famously, Saul Bellow was the main problem when Elizabeth Taylor was shortlisted for the Booker. We've told, we've told this story before. His immortal phrase at the Booker judges meeting was to pick up a copy of Mrs Palfrey at the Claremont rather disdainfully yeah. and say, I think I hear the tinkle of teacups. I didn't know that. <laughs> just as well. <laughs> Returning to Elizabeth Jenkins, I'd like to read just a tiny bit here. There's a really lovely passage about the differences in taste between Evelyn, the husband, and Imogen, the wife. He has, for instance, a strong aesthetic sense for decoration, the ways in which he wants to decorate a room. He sure does. And they move from, she moves from discussing that into, another, into a discussion of their reading and books. And um, I think anyone who's listened to this podcast will find this very... Uh, Um, enlightening. Their reading was sometimes a source of disharmony. Imogen read so willingly and so much and where their tastes coincided pleased him so greatly by her sympathy and intelligence that it disappointed him when she declared she could not read Conrad (laughs) or Herman Melville (laughs) or the more political of Disraeli's novels. (laughs) Worse, however, was her addiction to those lesser works of literature, exactly what you're talking about, Carmen, that combined thrilling emotion with a grave deficiency of common sense. (laughs) Evelyn had stigmatised someone in court as, quote, a gay Lothario, and Imogen, seeing this reported in the newspapers, at once sat down to read The Fair Penitent and was absorbed and charmed by this vehement, if unbalanced, work. She thought it only right in the circumstances that Evelyn should read it himself, This he could hardly deny, and he accepted it from her, though with some misgiving. He sat up to read it and told her next morning that he had seldom been so glad to get to the end of anything. What miserable stuff, he exclaimed. (laughs) But don't you think it interesting, she asked. I see it isn't great, but I thought it so intensely fascinating. My dear girl, he said, you must be out of your mind. For heaven's sake, read something worthwhile if you must spend all this time reading. reading. <laughs> you know. Absolutely. That's very good, isn't it? But, all, but also, I looked up who wrote The Fair Penitent. Do you know? No, not off the top of my head. It's a head. short story by Wilkie Collins. Wilkie is Collins. It? it is a short story by Wilkie Collins. So Wilkie Collins would have been seen as yes, he would. sensational Absolutely. and melodramatic Absolutely. in a way that, say, Conrad and Melville yep. were not. Just going back to White, Evelyn, who we can all sort of detest, but this is good. She doesn't let you detest him because he's a capable... There, is, there are more detestable people in the book than... <laughs> and her minor characters, the Leapers, are... I don't think they're more detestable. I think she detests them more. Yeah, that's possibly true. But here's Evelyn. Evelyn had not much time for sitting in the village pub, but he enjoyed an occasional half hour in the dark little back room of the Fisherman's Rest where the windows were glazed with thick greenish panes that gave the light a watery quality, and where he, the postman, the station master, the neighbouring farmers and shopkeepers would sit in a contented silence, 
so companionable that it seemed to an outsider that they must be having some wordless intercourse, like animals. To Mr Leeper, this is the, the man who likes to tear everything down and build modern houses, the fisherman's rest was a pokey little hole that made no worthwhile contribution to communal life. He explained to Evelyn one evening, as they walked home from it, his plans for a new public house in the development area. The green in front of it would be covered with chairs and tables and gay umbrellas, and here, not men only, but their wives and families would congregate, drinking Coca-Cola and ice cream sodas. What will they do when it's wet or cold? asked Evelyn. Mr Leeper mastered his displeasure and said, They will go inside. I should concentrate on the inside if I were you, said Evelyn. Kindly. <laughs> mm. I think there's one thing one has to point out about Elizabeth Jenkins, which that piece that you've just read uh, explains very well. Not all these writers were the same. No. And Elizabeth Jenkins is far more precise than Elizabeth Taylor. There's nothing that she misses. No. Not the slightest little thing. You know, you can sort of see it's quite a surprising ending, but a it's, wonderf- wonderful, oh, the wonderful, the, the absolutely is wonderful. Brilliant. How did she know? Yeah. It's that one of those brilliant literary things of an ending that seems inevitable that you couldn't call three pages before you read it. No way. Because it, it's simultaneously surprising and completely satisfying, and mm. yet you realise it's been seeded all the way through the book and you haven't spotted it. It's sort of hiding in front of you. It's wonderful. It's a novel about two other things, really, too. One is her descriptions of female beauty, of what women mm. feel about other women. The hell with men in this regard. She... she so precise of a woman who presumably wasn't very beautiful herself, Elizabeth Jenkins, her observations Amazing. of what it is to be a beautiful woman and, and the limitations she felt it, it placed on that, their lives when Hilary that's Mantel, all they had. Hilary Mantel has this great line, which I think yes. is right. Imogen has been asked to play the ingenue and has missed the point where her husband changed and required her to change. It's that terrible feeling of through the book of her trying it's to scrapping. catch up. She's just not. She's she's missed something, and she she can't get she can't get it back. Mm. And meanwhile, he is, as you say, indulging in this kind of because she's practical and has, you know, likes hunting and fishing, and it doesn't matter what she looks like. Yes, but think of all the other women in the book as described by Elizabeth Jenkins. You can see her, like, like Hilary Mantel says, sitting on a mantelpiece, yes. observing the women. The beautiful Zenobia, how she is pr- <laughs> described. Primrose, the wife of yeah. Paul. All of them, precise. Utterly precise. Yeah. She's observed go. women like no-one else. Here we go, the, Carmen, this is Zenobia, the poet. <laughs> This is one of the the Austen-like lines you were reading earlier. Zenobia wrote verse which, though it made no concessions to popular understanding, yet sold at a small profit rather than a dead loss. (laughs) (laughs) This was very extraordinary, and it gave Zenobia the importance of a celebrity and of a serious artist. She had another claim to fame. She was a beautiful woman, so beautiful that her beauty was admitted everywhere as a matter of fact rather than opinion. I mean, it's, it's writing of the best kind Absolutely. that manages to be so condensed, yet tell mm. you in the space of a few lines, make you laugh, tell you a truth. Also, uh, just the, the writing about nature, light through oh, the, the novel. Nature. It's, it, 
exquisite, I think. Uh, the, there's a stuff too. There's, she was a spiritualist, Elizabeth Jenkins. Rather Not a, again. Yeah, another one. You didn't tell me that. She didn't. Where did you read that? Or I, find... I, I, I found she wrote a book about. Um, oh, she wrote a book about like a medium, Dave, David Douglas. Back. Hume, The Shadow and the Light, published in 19... 19- that's why Rosalind recommended it yeah, to me. Yeah, exactly. Of course they met at seances. So there's a... <laughs> but there's a, there's a sort of slightly... You know, the, you know the Sylvia Townsend Warner Lolly Willows mode happens with Blanche. She suddenly starts to look younger and she's filled with this kind of s- strange energy and yeah. that, that, that what, what love can do, how it can kind of in, inhabit someone and transform them physically. She writes about that so brilliantly. I, I always like my novel, my Virago Modern Classics, to be flawed, you know, a little <laughs> bit flawed. And I don't think that Blanche's transformation, because of having um, fornicated with Evelyn... <laughs> Quite it comes it comes across. Now, all of a sudden, this lumpen proletariat of a woman, though she's not a proletariat, she's a lumpen upper class. Lumpen bourgeois. Lumpen, lumpen, lumpen. Yeah. Lumpen aristocrat Well, not aristocrat. Um, and all of a sudden, because she's fornicated with some, what's his face, Evelyn, she's transformed. Yeah. Her skin glows and yeah, stuff yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. <laughs> That's my one flaw. Mm. There's another question that I want to ask you, Karma, but before, the before, I, before I get to it... No, I'm... Oh, well, I might the actually what? ask you about that. <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to write... John, I'm writing that down <laughs> so I don't forget. How many times do you think you've read The Tortoise and the Hare? And how has, three it cha- or four times. how has it changed over the years as, you, as you've read it? Uh, this time, I thought it was much more brilliant than I did. <laughs> much more brilliant. I was amazed because I've lived in another world for 20 years, yeah. you know, French history and now English history, because... I write history, mm, mm. Um, social history or history or whatever it is, and I just couldn't believe how much better it was. And I, I, Not that I ever thought it was bad. I thought it was wonderful. It was my favourite classic. But goodness me, I thought, Good, well done, Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, a, not a thought that, you know, not something I live with on an hourly basis. I think it's a marvellous book. You know, I'm going to ask you now, Carmen, I've said that I would ask you this. That listed listeners will will be pleased that I asked this. So you were great friends with and were the publisher of Angela Carter. Yes. And you were also very great friends with Anita Bruckner. Yes. And in the early 1980s, it's fair to say that they were perceived as Mm. opposite ends of the literary Mm. spectrum. One experimental, the other conservative with a small C, perhaps... And I wondered whether uh, whether you ever felt caught in the middle there, or mm-hmm. whether I certainly they... did. I certainly did. Angie wasn't in love with novels like The Tortoise and the Hare. That's definitely the case. But she did love some of my classics writers and helped me a great deal with them. I always remember she, some of them she would read. For example, Angie read Enid Bagnold, and um, I said to her. And I've come across a novel by Enid Bagnold I just don't think I can publish, but it's absolutely wonderful, and don't ask me the title, but <clears throat> because I've forgotten it. And I gave it to Angie to read. And what happens in the end is that Enid Bagnold introduces a black man and she describes him in a way that is simply unacceptable by everybody, not just today, <laughs> but a thousand years ago. You know, it's the British Empire, it's worse. And Angie wrote me a wonderful thing saying... Even you can't. <laughs> so she did read me and she loved Christina Stead, she loved some of them, but certainly not that sort of we, novel. We no. wondered, I mean, I always thought that... Well, it was Anita. Sure, the Bob, yeah. the Barbara Anita. Cummings. Anita was the great patron of 
I mean, didn't Anita tell me, give me a Rosamund Lehman? I can't remember. She, she but no, we, Lehman, we couldn't publish Rosamund Lehman. Collins mm. wouldn't let me do it. But I think it would be Anita who gave me Rosamund Lehman to, to read. No, no, no. Whether in the streets, I'd always read because of having abortions. Mm, mm. Everybody who had abortions mm. read Rosamund Lehman, the weather in the streets. That was all you had to go on, actually. Anita dedicated yeah. Friend from England to you, didn't she? Yes, you? she did, yes. Was there ever a dinner party at which you... Which there would have been. Sat opposite uh, there would have been, but I, I, I think you're. I mean, I think Angie got crosser about the lack of acknowledgement she had in during her lifetime than she did with people like Anita. She, ah, okay. she knew, she valued Anita, but not Anita's vein of literary thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But strangely enough, both of them were extraordinarily interested in. Well, I mean, to say Anita was interested in art is ridiculous. She was wonderfully interested in art, but Angie's sort of interest in art was more exotic and also related to movies and cinema, which, of course, was much more mean. Mm, mm. But, no, they were never rude to each other, and Anita was never rude to anybody, which was her loss, actually. She should have been. And I don't think Angie was either. They never got at each other's throats. No. But Angie could be very, very cross about the big four, you know, the the, the Well, I, I've told this story. Didn't I tell this story on the television? <laughs> Angie was dying of lung cancer, and uh, she gave me the synopsis for her last novel called Adela, which is about Jane Eyre's, you know, the little the little girl Jane Eyre's looking after. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I sent it upstairs to they who must be obeyed, <laughs> and I got a uh, thing back, uh, not an email memo, saying this is obviously a minor work and we know that she's dying of lung cancer so we must be kind. Therefore I, you, I permit you to offer something like £60,000 and I knew that Martin Amos had been offered £400,000 that very day. That's the sort of thing that drove me mad. That's yeah. why I left publishing. Yeah. But that's the sort of thing she knew about and that made her cross. Yeah. Yeah. Do okay. you see? But I think she makes a lot of money now, Angie. And I wouldn't have thought a lot of other writers do. <laughs> we'll leave that. We'll leave that hanging. <laughs> that would be true. I was just amused because about the, the the paradigm of Virago modern classic, the famous line that you always is, you wouldn't go below the Whipple line. Yes, that's still true. <laughs> but I didn't see anything wrong with that. But it became very famous, didn't it? It did. It did. Well, well, and why? This is the novels of Dorothy Whipple. Whipple. Why, I, I, why come? Well, when the writer couldn't write, you know, there had to be some social yeah. reason of great, yeah. great interest. For example, Jonathan Miller had a mother called Mrs Betty Miller. She was married to the psychiatrist. And uh, Stevie Smith wrote a wonderful short story about Jonathan Miller and his mother, uh, pointing out... Well, never mind, I don't think I'd better tell that story. But... <laughs> um, <laughs> Betty Miller wrote very, very not good English, but her description of London during the war was wonderful. So I did publish one novel of hers. That's above the Whipple line. Do you see what I mean? Oh, yeah. uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. all right. Sir. Because I, it evoked. Yeah, yeah. I read a Virago modern classic recently by Ellen Wilkinson about a, an account of the the Jarrow March. Yes, and the strikes, now that would be yes, yes. Which again is not tremendously well no. written, but is absolutely oh, fascinating I often did because that. there aren't any other novels by women mm. written yeah. who took yeah, part yeah, in exactly. Jarrow. You know, exactly. Okay. So it had a such, yeah, yeah. and you see something like um, the spoons came from Woolworth, or 
idiosyncratic one-off books, but not droning on like Woman's Own, which Dorothy Whipple did. <laughs> I think we might leave it there. <laughs> but is there anything else we want to say so, about the tortoise and the hare before we sign off? Do you think we've been uh, explained enough to this machine, this podcast machine, <laughs> that how wonderful the novel is? Well, I... I hope so. I mean, I think we... Why should somebody read it here now, 2018? To make you exquisitely happy because you've read a great piece of work. And also, I don't want to say it's like reading Charles Dickens because not a lot of people don't like to read him anymore, but it tells such a story. Mm. I love to be told a story. I think anybody who's ever been in love and and who's had love that's gone wrong, that feeling that she creates of, of, of... doesn't matter what you do, you've, you're losing this person, yes. and it, and and you there's there's no way that you can change it. And she doesn't, she doesn't sentimentalise it. No. She doesn't make it into melodrama. She's true to the each of the characters in in their own way. You you get enough of the inner inner motivation for each of the characters in in the triangle for you not to yes. despise them completely. And whoever you think the tortoise it, yeah. and the hare are. In fact, it doesn't matter, does it? Because you can see no, it, it either matter. way around. Isn't she clever? Yeah, really. Just as a piece of work, as a rather like the, her beautiful descriptions of the Evelyn. One of the main uh, metaphors in the book, or, or, or symbols in the book, is that there, there are these badly silvered. I thought of that today, yeah. and I thought, shall we discuss the silver plating? And he, he's desperate to have them plated, and, yeah. and she likes the fact that they're, they're tarnished, tarnished and burnished and, yeah. and have, a, have a kind of a patina of patina age. Own, yeah. Those details, that's what this book is like. It's like an incredibly perfectly realised object. Yes, it is. I mean, from whichever angle you come into it, you, you, you're surprised and, th- and thrilled by the, just the, the craftsmanship. And its atmosphere, if you're mm. going to be Austin-esque, which she is, is persuasion. Yeah. It's in the persuasion novel. Right. Well, that's it. Our mismatched race is now run. Huge thanks to Carmen, to our producer, Nikki Birch, and to our track sponsors, Unbound. You can download all 79 of our other shows, plus follow up all the links, clips, and suggestions for further reading on our website, batlisted.fm. And, of course, you can still contact us on Twitter, Facebook and Boundless. Uh, if you've enjoyed, we have, we always do. <laughs> so we can say, oh, don't say that. Because we, we, I think some listeners want us to sound like we're enjoying it less. Anyway, <laughs> why, why, why not leave a review with stars if you feel so moved on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from? Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back in a fortnight. Thank you, Carmen. Thank you. And Alexa... prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.